Amen. Turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 23. And if you are a guest, just so you understand what's happening with the service, this is the portion of our service which we're calling Deeper Waters. And uh, it's, it's about 20 minutes in at 1030. I am not the main speaker. You will have, uh, our pastor will be speaking to us in just a little bit. But from the book of Luke, chapter 23, and verse 46, it says, And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. So we've been talking about the seven utterances or sayings of Jesus on the cross. And this is our last and final lesson. We're going to begin a new very short series next week. Um, we're going to be going a different direction for about four weeks. Um, but this is the last word. The very last thing that Jesus uttered was, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Jesus, having suffered in the most horrific manner for six hours, finally died. And if you study and if you read what the things that he went through were, you will know that death would have been a welcomed event at that point. As a matter of fact, his body was beaten beyond recognition. Much of his blood had been spilled on the ground. Much of it would have been spilled at the whipping post where he got whipped with that cat of nine tails. But a lot of it would have been spilled in the place where they would have nailed him to that cross. So his body was beaten beyond recognition. His blood spilled on the ground. There would have been a trail of blood from the whipping post to the very top of Mount Golgotha. As a matter of fact, when you read Isaiah chapter 52, in verse 14, the Bible says this, As many as were astonished at thee, his visage was marred more than any other man, and his form more than the sons of men. So when it talks about his visage, it means his countenance and, and what he physically would have looked like. And whenever you read this verse in the Hebrew, then uh, a literal translation would literally be something like that his, he was beaten beyond recognition. He was beaten to the point that you would not have recognized him as either a male or a female. Like his, his body was just marred and tore up. By the time he reached the point of death, his visage was marred more than any other man's visage would have been marred in the history of death. That's according to Isaiah. In the very next chapter, Isaiah picks up that theme in chapter 53, a very popular passage. You know this from verse 5. Isaiah said, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. It's often been said he took the death that we should have taken, and that's true. But we could not have taken that death. I mean, physically, you may or may not have been able to, to, to handle it, but it wouldn't have done you any good, even if you could have died in such a manner, because you would still be in the same boat. You can't die for your own sins. You needed a, a lamb, a spotless lamb of God in order to do that for you and in your place. That is, a member of the human race who had not sinned and who was not under the same curse that Adam fell under whenever he sinned. And that's why, as you know, Jesus needed to be born of a virgin because although he was still a member of the human race, being born in the womb of Mary and conceived there, Yet his father would have been the eternal spirit of God. And so that would have not passed on to him the nature of Adam. But his last and final words 
were the fulfillment of Psalms 31 and 5, where, he, where, where King David said, Into thine hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. And when the Savior spoke these last and final words, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. We often miss the miracle of this event, <clears throat> of how the veil was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Whenever you read old Jewish encyclopedias, as a matter of fact, most modern Jewish encyclopedias state that King Herod's temple, which was the temple standing at the time that the Lord was crucified in his physical body, Okay, remember whenever Jesus pointed to the temple and he said, destroy this and in three days I'll raise it up. He was pointing to Herod's temple. Okay, so that temple where the veil was currently standing was built to the dimensions of Solomon's temple. Now we often think because it was the veil, our minds often go back to Moses' tabernacle in the wilderness. And that veil would have been still pretty high, 12 to 15 feet. But this veil in Herod's temple, Herod's temple was built much more magnificently and larger than that mobile tent in the wilderness that moved from place to place. And whenever you understand the dimensions of the veil, then you understand the miracle that happened there. 1 Kings 6 and verse 19 says this. This is talking about the dimensions of that holy place inside of Solomon's temple. And the oracle he prepared in the house within to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. <clears throat> and the oracle in the forepart was 20 cubits in length, 20 cubits in breadth, and 20 cubits in the height thereof. And he overlaid it with pure gold and so covered the altar, which was of cedar. So the word oracle here was the innermost part of the sanctuary, what we know as that most holy place. It was that, that room, as it were, that laid, that was beyond that veil of the temple, that was the, beyond that veil. So he said that it was about 20 cubits high, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits long. A cubit was the distance between the tip of your fingers to your elbow. So it would have been about 18 inches, you know, roughly. So the holy, holiest of holies would have been 30 feet long, about 30 feet long, about 30 feet wide, and about 30 feet high. And that means that the veil of the temple that was designed to keep all the light and everything so that you couldn't peek inside. So it would have covered the entirety of that holy place. So the veil would have been 30 feet long and 30 feet high. Now, I don't know how what the dimensions of, of this, this building is. It's, it's, it's not 30 feet this way. It's probably much larger than that. But 30 feet is still, a, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty far, it, especially when you consider 30 feet high. What about the thickness? Well, Scripture does not say, but Jewish tradition says that the veil of the temple was so thick that two oxen tied to either part of the veil could not pull that, could not pull that veil apart. Now, the Bible does not say that. That's a Jewish tradition. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what they say. But the miracle is not in the thickness. The miracle is in the height and how tall the veil was. 30 feet high, and that veil was rent all the way from the very top to the bottom. Not to mention the fact that, you know, even if it was just a few inches thick, which clearly it was much more than that, but even if it was just a few inches thick, that would have been too much for a single man to pull apart by himself. No man ever stood that high, 30 feet high. Only an angel of the Lord or God himself could have done that. 
And so the Bible says that when he died and he breathed his last breath and said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, that veil was instantly and immediately torn in two from the very top to the bottom. The angel of the Lord was standing ready at the moment that he uttered his last breath, waiting to hear those words. And when he did, he tore open that veil. Aren't you glad for that? Now, when you understand what laid beyond that veil, you understand the real miracle of it. It wasn't just in the fact that it was torn from the top to the bottom, but it was in the fact that nobody could ever go beyond that veil except for the high priest. So what you have felt, which is the genuine presence of God, I hope that at some point in your life that you've felt that genuine presence of God. If you haven't, then I hope that you feel it today. But most of us here today have genuinely felt the presence of God. You could not feel that in the Old Testament. You understand that worshipers, when they came to the Lord, many times, most of the time, they weren't feeling anything. They were just doing what they were commanded to do. They were ceremonially going through things. And so the high priest, when he went beyond that veil, he was the one that could feel and see the presence of God. And so many times, we take things for granted because, uh, you know, we often are in the presence of God and feeling it, but we don't always fully appreciate what we're feeling. And we don't always fully respond to what we're feeling, but we should because it came at a great cost. Hebrews chapter 10 says this, having therefore brother boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. By a new living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. So in the Old Testament, there was a veil that kept them out. In the New Testament, the veil to enter God's presence became the flesh of Jesus Christ. His body and his blood became the way that we enter in. You cannot enter in by your own good works. You cannot enter in because, you know, you go through your life and most of your good works outweigh your bad works. That doesn't work with God. We always tend to be arbitrary in our own judgment of ourselves. But God is not arbitrary in his judgment. He sees all the way down to the heart, and he knows the condition of our heart is sinful. And before we can adequately really serve the Lord with all of our heart, we've got to have a changed heart and a changed mind. So that's why you don't get good to get God. You get God, and then he makes you good. And he turns your life around. He changes the desires of your heart, your mind, your spirit. And that's salvation. But his flesh became the way in. The presence of God was in a place that was high and lifted up. Remember, 30 feet all the way high. Leviticus 16 and 2 says this. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil. Before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not, for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. So, a little bit of history here. The mercy seat was the lid for the ark of the covenant. And God had told Moses many times, I'm going to sit there on top of the mercy seat and I'm going to commune with you. So remember the ark of the covenant, which contained Aaron's rod, uh, Aaron's rod that budded. It contained a golden pot of manna. It also contained the Ten Commandments there. Then the lid for it was, on, was, the, was the Ark of the Covenant. Every year, once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would come in, and it was Aaron, he would sprinkle the blood of the covenant or from that lamb on top of that mercy seat. And, and that was to make atonement for the people. So every day when God looked down, he saw the law, except for one year, one day a year, and he would see the blood. 
He didn't see the broken law. He sees us through the blood. He doesn't see our weaknesses, but he sees, he sees him. Whenever we are covered with the blood of Jesus, God sees us. God doesn't see us. He sees his sacrificial atonement. He sees his righteousness because we put that on. Amen. And so the lid for the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat. That's where God sat. It's where he dwelt. And so uh, it, was, it was there that the glory of the Lord appeared above the mercy seat. And it would have filled the place above the holy place. It would, it would have filled the entire holy place. It would have filled everything that was above the Ark of the Covenant. The entire 30 feet in length would have been shrouded and clouded in God's presence. It would have been a thick glory cloud. Matter of fact, the Jews used to call it the Shekinah glory. And it just means the present glory. I've seen this many times, you know, in different churches, you know, where the Lord is moving in a very strong way, and you look out, and it looks like there's a cloud right above the congregation. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's just me, you know, or maybe I just had too much milk before I went to church that night. I don't know. But I've seen what I, what I believe to be a, a cloud of glory, and, and it can cover the congregation at times. Amen. And to be in that and to not be struck dead. Because that's what would happen if the high priest didn't have everything perfectly right. If he stopped moving and that bell stopped ringing, they'd know to pull him out because he died. Now, as far as I know, it's never recorded that anybody died in the holy place. But God said, if you don't do this right, you will die. And so it was the entire place. So God was in a place that was high and lifted up. And that veil would have hid his presence from the rest of the world. Now, when you cross-reference that with Isaiah 6 and 1, where Isaiah said this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Isaiah saw the Lord in the same kind of state that the high priest would have saw him in, when he went beyond the veil, he was in a place that was unattainable, that was higher than he was. As he was on earth, so was he in heaven high and lifted up. He was in a place that was generally unattainable to sinful man. And no matter how much man tried to reach, we could not reach God, so he came to us. And the veil was torn, and a new way to enter God's presence was made available through his blood. There was a sword that guarded the entrance into the Garden of Eden. There was an angel with a sword that, that met Joshua at the entrance of Canaan's Jericho. And there was a veil and two cherubims that guarded God's presence from the rest of the world behind the veil. But now man has free access into God's presence and his power. Rich and poor, good and bad, the best of us and the worst of us. All have the same level of access to God. Aren't you grateful for that today? <laughs> Hallelujah. <clears throat> he didn't come just for the good, but he came for the bad and the worst and the worser than worst. <laughs> he came for the ones that we would deem unredeemable. You know, the ones that we would say, man, he'll never find God or he wouldn't make a good Christian at all. Those are usually the people that make the best. Because the ones that are good and dirty, God makes them good and clean. And they know that they were awful before. There is no doubt about it. And I'm so grateful for that today. Ephesians 2 says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are sometimes afar off, are made nigh by the blood 
of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. You have access today. You have access into his presence. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've done up until this moment, you have immediate access into the presence of God. <laughs> Hallelujah. And secondly, the veil being torn means that God no longer dwells in temples made with hands. The physical sanctuary was always the place where God dwelt under the law of Moses. So if we were under the law of Moses and you said, well, you know, let's, let's go see God or let's, let's go where God dwells. I wouldn't go to, you know, to, to your house or to my house. We would go to the temple in Jerusalem. And you would have to make that long journey. If you lived in the outskirts and it was a six-day journey on foot, then you had to make that six-day journey. That was the only place you could gain access to God uh, in, under, the, under the law. So the physical sanctuary was always that place where God dwelt. It was a sacred holy place, and Israel recognized it as God's physical dwelling place. Second Chronicles 5 says this, It came even to pass, as the trumpeters and singers were as one, to make one sound to be heard in the praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever, that then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord. God came out of the veil and went among his people this one time in the Bible so that the priest could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. There was a physical manifestation of God's presence in the form of a pillar of cloud. And when you reference that with Israel's journey in the wilderness, it wasn't just a pillar of cloud, it was also a pillar of fire. But God's presence no longer dwells there. He dwells where he wanted to dwell from the very dawn of time. He never wanted or desired to dwell in a house made of gold or cedar. He wanted to dwell in you and I through the power of the Holy Spirit. That was where God put his spirit inside of Adam from the very beginning of time. Since separated that, man became separated and death, in, death ensued. But God made a way again for, man, for, for God's spirit to live inside of man. 1 Corinthians 3 says this, Knowing not that you are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. The infilling of the Holy Spirit makes the, us the temple of the living God. Just as that sanctuary was sacred and holy, so we are sacred and holy from the things that we do, the things that we think, the things that we watch, the things that we put on, the places that we go. Everything that we do is to be sacred and holy. We are to follow after holiness and that pattern that he showed us. Because the infilling of the Holy Ghost is, is what makes us the temple of God. So we don't wait for the glory to come down in this place. We bring it with us through the Holy Ghost. If you're waiting for the preacher to say the right words or the praise team to sing the right instrument or to sing the right song or the right music, whatever it is, then you're waiting for the wrong thing. You bring it with you. Everybody say, I bring it with me. You bring the glory because you have the Holy Ghost. 
Amen. That's why Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst of them. He didn't say, you, you got to have a guitar, and you got to have a big praise team, and you got to have a keyboard, and you got to have 200 people here. He said, if there's just a couple of people that are gathered in my name, I'm right there, because you bring him with you. He comes in our praise. He inhabits the praises of his people. We are a spirit-filled church. You bring the glory. If you have the Holy Spirit and are prayed up, then you are carriers of his glory. Just as the Levitical priesthood put the Ark of the Covenant on top of their shoulders, and only a certain sons of Aaron could have done that. It couldn't just be anybody. It had to be a certain... Uh, a certain element of the priesthood were responsible for doing that. So we are carriers of his glory. You are carrying the ark and the presence of God inside of you. And last, I close with this from Acts 2. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. It filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared cloven tongues like as a fire sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. Let me just tell you this, that, that whenever it says uh, that, that, a pillar of, or, uh, that a pillar of fire sat on top of them, that was cross-referencing that with the same pillar of fire that followed the Israelites through their journeys in the wilderness. And, and it, was, it was a sign to everybody that this is where God is. And when, and, and when God chose to fill his church with his spirit, he gave the church the same sign that he gave the world in the Old Testament. And that was a pillar of fire, and they began to speak with other tongues. If you are here today, and you have never been baptized into the Holy Spirit, let me tell you, it is the greatest thing that will ever happen to you. There is nothing like it. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Let's lift our hands. Let's thank the Lord for just a moment. Come on, let your faith out for just a moment today. Okay. 